People of God, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We'll be reading verses 5 through 25 of Luke 1. It can be found on page 1587 in your pew Bibles. But before we read God's word, let's go to him asking for his illumination on this passage. Lord, you are our light. You are the one to whom we look. You are the one through whom we have salvation. And Lord, as we read your word this morning, as we hear from you how you have kept your promises in the past, we pray that you would strengthen our faith even now, that we might be drawn to Christ evermore, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Congregation, when readers are first introduced to the kingdom of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they're brought to a world defined by snow. And a lot of snow, in fact, right? Because the rightful ruler, Aslan, he hadn't been around. And in his absence, the white witch took charge. 
She ushered in a hundred years of winter, and snow dominated the landscape. Wherever you go, wherever you look, winter. Thankfully, I don't have an example to point to outside to relate to that. Yet about halfway through that book, as Edmund and the witch are driving along in the sledge, that winter begins to disappear. Right? Signs of spring keep popping up as they go along. They're enveloped by fog. They hear the noise of running water. They see patches of grass appearing in the snow. They see flowers blooming, leaves on trees, signs that a new work was happening. Signs that the imposter kingdom of the witch was being replaced by the true and legitimate kingdom of Aslan. Now, our passage this morning shows similar signs of an in-breaking kingdom. Within these verses, we see the first signs of the kingdom of God that's about to be ushered in. Now, we need to note that these verses, they stand at the chronological forefront of the New Testament. In other words, when we're talking about time, these verses are the first thing that happen in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark begins at the dawn of Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist preaching in the desert and Jesus coming to be baptized. And the Gospel of John does the same thing after his famous prologue. And the Gospel of Matthew goes back years earlier, beginning with Mary found to be with child. But the Gospel of Luke, it goes back even farther. Luke starts before Jesus' ministry, before Jesus' birth, before anything having to do with Jesus. Now why does he do that? Now, as we see in verses 1 through 4 of Luke 1, if we read that, Luke begins his gospel by stating that the purpose of this document is to write an orderly account so that Theophilus, this guy he's sending the letter to, may have certainty about what he's being taught. And so in order to provide an orderly account, Luke starts at the beginning. He places us at the, at the end of the intertestamental period, the, that, those 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He shows us obedient Jews keeping the faith, repeating their rituals, and waiting. It's been that way for years, just like the witch's winter. And suddenly, in our passage, the very beginning of Luke's orderly account, we see God breaking into history once again in a way that is both reflective of Old Testament patterns, but also anticipatory. It's it's pointing ahead to something new that God is going to do. God is at work again. And this work of God must be believed by Zechariah and Elizabeth, by Theophilus, and by all who read this orderly account, even us today. And not only must it be believed, it also can be believed. It can be trusted. We see that God's redemptive work that will bring joy to his hopeless people can be trusted. And as we look at this new redemptive work of God, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that God's redemptive work takes place in a hopeless realm in verses 5 through 10. That God's redemptive work produces a joyful result in verses 11 through 17. And that God's redemptive work comes from a trustworthy ruler in verses 18 through 25. Now, first, the hopeless realm. Right? And there's actually three different aspects to this hopeless realm. First, there's the hopeless political realm. Verse 5 opens by telling us that these events happened in the days of Herod, king of Judea. 
And this orients us historically. It tells us what's happening in the land. Who's reigning? Hey, Theophilus, you want some certainty? Hey, everyone out reading this book, you want some certainty? Here it is. These events happened during the reign of this guy. Happened during Herod's reign. But this verse also accomplishes two other purposes. It sets up a difference, a dichotomy between two different kingdoms. We've got the kingdom of Herod, and we have the kingdom of God that's going to be breaking forth in this region. It takes us back to that old dichotomy between the line of the serpent and the seed of the woman. With this dichotomy, we see that conflict is going to be happening. But it's also said in such a way that it takes the reader back. Back to the days of the old kings of Israel. In First and Second Kings, each new king that's introduced, they're, done, they're introduced in way of contrast with the king of the other nation. Right? In, the, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, Asa began to reign. In the 7th year of Jehu, Joash began to reign. And so we see a comparison here. In the days of Herod, these events are going to take place. False kingdom, true kingdom. There is a king in Judea, but it's not one from the line of David. There is an imposter on the throne. And so this political realm, it looks hopeless. Like God's promises of of a Davidic king have been forgotten. And with that in mind, we are looking for the true king. But we're not introduced to a king, at least not yet. No, we are introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, both from a Levitical background. And verse 6 tells us that these two were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, does this mean we've got two perfect people here? No, we, we remember Romans 3, right? All have sinned, and Zechariah and Elizabeth aren't exempt from that. But this description does paint them as faithful Jews. Although there have been 400 years of silence from God, although they are currently under the oppression of Herod, they've remained faithful to the Lord. They haven't turned away from God. They haven't thrown in the towel to start living it up, prodigal son style. No, they've remained true. They're waiting on the Lord. But in spite of that faithfulness, we see another aspect of our hopeless realm. And this is the hopeless personal realm. For as verse 7 says, they had no child. Right? Elizabeth was barren, and she and her husband were well advanced in years. That added detail of age shows that even though they have desired a child, there was no chance of it happening. Elizabeth was past her childbearing years, and so her womb was not going to be naturally producing any children. Right? It's, it's hopeless. And yet as we read that, we remember all those other times in the Old Testament where God worked in hopeless wombs. Right? Hannah, Rachel, Rebecca, and the grandmother of them all, Sarah, Again and again, God worked in the barren womb of these women so that each of them bore a son against insurmountable circumstances. But God didn't just give them a son to make their hearts glad, although it definitely did. No, God provided each of these women with a son so that his purposes might come about through them. Isaac was the promised son of the covenant. Jacob was a continuation of that line. Joseph was instrumental in preserving that line. 
Samuel was God's spokesman in the transition between the judges and the kings. In each of these situations of barren women, God worked in spite of their barrenness in order to do something for his people, in order to provide a new work for them. And so the presence of this barren woman at the beginning of Luke's gospel, it points to a new work from God. This personal realm looks hopeless, but with these parallels in mind, as we see Elizabeth's barrenness, we're hearing that drip, drip, drip of snow melting. We're seeing the appearance of God once more in his land, among his people. We're waiting to know what God is going to be doing. But we continue to wait in verses 8 through 10 as we see the third aspect of our hopeless realm. And this is the hopeless religious realm. Zechariah's division is on duty. He's serving as priest. And then by the providence of God, he's chosen by Lot to enter God's temple and burn incense, symbolizing the prayers of the people. And to further drive that point home, we see faithful Israel outside the temple praying as he goes in. This is a nation that is waiting for the Lord. And they've been waiting 400 years since God's last revelation to the prophet Malachi. They've been faithfully following these ceremonies and rituals, but they haven't heard from God. And after all that time, there's got to be some wondering going on. Has God forgotten about us? Will God remember his promises? Have we been abandoned? It's a hopeless realm, religiously. And as we see this hopeless realm, politically, personally, and religiously, Think of how this would have affected Theophilus. Luke's writing in order to provide him certainty, which perhaps indicates that he himself was doubting, or that there was some unsurety that he was experiencing. Perhaps he was experiencing some hopelessness. Now think about your own life, especially in this Advent season of waiting and anticipation. Are you feeling some hopelessness? Perhaps you're feeling hopelessness about a sin that clings to you. Perhaps you've got an estranged family member who won't be coming home for Christmas, and that makes you feel hopeless. Or you've lost a family member in the last year, or you've lost your job, or you've been diagnosed with something this past year, and that situation feels hopeless. Maybe you see all the Christmas lights, and you hear all the Christmas carols, and you're just not feeling it this year. Everything just feels hopeless. Or maybe you're like Theophilus and you're looking for certainty about the faith. People of God, just as this passage was written to bring Theophilus certainty, so too can it bring you certainty. In this Advent season, for in the presence of this hopeless realm of our text, God has worked and he will continue to work in hopeless realms. There's no situation too far God too far gone for God. He is in the business of working in hopeless realms. And it's in this hopeless realm of of Herod the Great, of a barren womb, and of waiting religion that we see that God's redemptive work produces a joyful result. That's our second point this morning, that this new work of God, it's going to bring about joy. Now, if there was any doubt that God was actually going to be working in this hopeless realm, it's immediately removed in verse 11. What happens in verse 11? Well, an angel appears. Right? Another sign that God is working again. Another patch of grass in the white snow. 
And the angel is standing on the right side of the altar, the side of favor. Good things are happening here in the temple of the Lord. But Zechariah is afraid, as are all, honestly, who are in the presence of the heavenly. You'll see it again in chapter 2, that famous passage where the shepherds are filled with fear when an angel appears before them. It's a typical response. But just as typical is the angel's answer. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Right? This, this work of God isn't supposed, to, isn't supposed to produce terror. It's supposed to produce joy. And this joy is going to center around a son to Zechariah and Elizabeth. The announcement that this son will be born and the description of what he's going to do, that forms the content of this angel's message. And the first thing that this angel says about him is that he is the prayed-for son. Verse 13, the angel says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And that's wonderful news, but it's also a little curious. What prayer is the angel talking about? We don't read of one in our text, do we? So the question is, what prayer is it? Did Zechariah pray for a son as he offered the incense? I mean, that's probably unlikely because they were both old. They probably had already given up hope and they had probably hadn't prayed for a son in a long time. Perhaps the angel is referring to those prayers long time ago, long forgotten by Zechariah and Elizabeth, but remembered by God. Now, this prayer could also be the prayer that Zechariah was supposed to pray as he offered the incense, a prayer for the deliverance of Israel, a prayer echoed by all those who were praying outside. Now, most commentators suggest, and I'm partial to their theory, that both of these can be in mind. The current prayers for deliverance and those past prayers for a child. Because this joyful result that we see, this birth of a son, it's going to address both of those concerns. A son will be born to this barren couple, which will then have great significance for the people of the nation. Through this one child, God is taking action in all three of those hopeless realms that we mentioned earlier. And in this, we can see the great concern that God has for his people. Right? He doesn't simply focus on the big events, those with huge significance in the history of the church. And he does do that. Make no mistake. We are seeing here a large work of God, but it's also one with a personal touch. At the same time, he is working in the personal lives of this couple. And so Theophilus and us as well, we can gain assurance that when we see God work in large ways, he's also caring for our lives at the same time. As the gospel is going forth, as his church is being built, God is caring for you. He is concerned about you. There's a lot of comfort there for the people of God. We aren't going to be forgotten or left behind as God works. He's concerned, he is concerned for his church as a whole, but he's also concerned for each and every individual within the church. And we see this double concern in verse 14. As we learn more about this son, seeing that he is a joy-producing son, the angel tells Zechariah, you will, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. There again, we see God has in mind both the large and the small scale. This priest and his wife, they will have joy. Well, sure, they finally get a son after giving up hope that they ever would. But also many would rejoice at this birth because of the significance this child would have. 
that he would be great before the Lord. And this language of being before the Lord brings us back to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi 3.1, where God says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This child is going to be born into this hopeless realm before the coming of the Lord. And so his presence is going to be a source of joy for all those who are waiting for the Lord. He holds a special place in the transition between the Old and the New Testament. And we see that he has this special place because verse 15 says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. His greatness isn't going to come from within himself, but because he's been sovereignly chosen by God to receive the Spirit. Even from the womb, he receives the Spirit. You can see that in verse 44 of Luke 1, when baby John leaps in the womb as Jesus comes into his presence. And so we're seeing an emphasis on John being set apart for his special role, being given the role of a prophet, of a spokesman of God. And it's in that prophetic role that he's going to do marvelous things. Verses 16 and 17 outline the purposes of John's ministry. He will both precede the Lord and prepare a people for his coming. And that language that's used in these verses comes directly from the book of Malachi again, this time chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. The very last verses of the Old Testament. Listen to what Malachi has to say as you read again verse 17. Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. What is promised in Malachi is reaffirmed here in Luke 1. This new revelation picks up exactly where the old one left off. But let's focus on John's role during this transition. He's going to come before the Lord, which necessarily implies that John is not the big deal here. Right? He's simply a forerunner coming before the Lord himself comes. He takes a lesser role. But even though his role is lesser, it is absolutely necessary. Because something needs to happen before the coming of the Lord. And that something is repentance. You see, this was an additional hopeless realm in the days of Zechariah that needed to be addressed before the coming of the Lord. The, yes, there was the hopeless political, the hopeless personal, and the hopeless religious realms. But now we see the hopeless realm of the human heart. Hearts filled with sin where an imposter had set up a a kingdom. They had set up their own rule. And so before the true kingdom comes, these hearts needed to repent, to turn again to the Lord so that his coming would be a wonderful time instead of a fearful time. If the Lord came without the people repenting, the the Lord's coming would be a terrible time of judgment. And so John was needed to turn their hearts so that they would be ready for the Lord's coming, so that they could receive him in joy. See, through John, God is preparing a people for himself and for his coming. Now, although John was unique in redemptive history, he does fall into a pattern that God has used throughout history. God warns would-be kingdom inhabitants to be prepared through the proclamation of his word. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, all the Old Testament prophets, what did they do? They, they called the people to repentance. John the Baptist would do the same. And they did so before the first coming of Christ. But God still uses people 
to call would-be kingdom inhabitants to repentance before the second coming of Christ. Peter in Acts 2, repent and be baptized. Paul in Acts 17, now God commands all people everywhere to, to what? To repent. And that call still goes out today. As ministers all over the globe urge people to prepare for the second coming of Christ, to repent, to turn from their ways and turn to Christ. The call still goes out today to believe the joyful promises of God. But some promises are just too good to be true. Right? We, we see this every election when candidates promise whatever voters want to hear in order to get their votes. Free health care, free, free tuition, a, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Or you think of those late night infomercials. Right, that promise of a knife that can cut through a cinder block or shampoo that will restore your long-lost hair. These promises sound so amazing, but they'll never find fulfillment. And so when you're considering whether or not to believe a promise, you have to know the source. You can't trust politicians or infomercials who want your vote or your money. You can't trust them, but who can you trust? You can trust God. And that brings us to our third point this morning, that God's redemptive work comes from a trustworthy ruler. Now, Zechariah hears these wonderful promises of the angel, of joy and repentance that this son of his is going to bring, and he has a question for the angel. Verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And that question should sound familiar. Because it's the very question asked by Abraham in Genesis 15.8. How shall I know? Right? Zechariah, he wants certainty. But he wasn't properly considering the source of this promise. That the God who promised Abraham and gave him a son is the same trustworthy God who is promising a son to him right now. Because that's exactly who this message is from. For although the angel has declared the good news about a son to Zechariah, this proclamation comes from God himself. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. This angel has come from the very presence of God to deliver this message to Zechariah. And his identity is proof enough that he can be trusted. But Zechariah doesn't trust it, does he? And so he's made to be silent. He's, he'll be unable to speak until this joy-producing child is born. And we see this take place immediately. For when Zechariah leaves the temple, he is unable to speak. But as we read on to the conclusion of our passage, we see that God's redemptive work that was promised in Gabriel's message did indeed come from a trustworthy ruler. Upon returning home, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that old couple with the hopeless womb, they conceive. God's word is fulfilled. And Elizabeth keeps herself hidden for reasons unknown, but in her seclusion, she blesses the Lord for his faithfulness to her. Our passage begins with the promised child on the way. And as we consider this situation we see that in this hopeless realm, God has promised a joyful result, and this word can be trusted because it comes from a trustworthy ruler. And this ruler demonstrates his trustworthiness 
in the very silence of Zechariah. Yes, this silence is punishment for his unbelief, but it also serves as a sign that God's message can be trusted. Because if the angel spoke the truth about Zechariah becoming mute, then surely he spoke the truth when he promised the birth of John. It's an initial fulfillment of God's word with a future fulfillment of his greater word yet to be accomplished. And if God's word can be trusted when it comes to the birth of this child, then how much more with the birth of another child who is promised in just a few short verses? For following this passage, the birth of Jesus is promised by Gabriel. And throughout the first two chapters of Luke, the accounts of these two promised children are intertwined. John is promised, then Jesus. John is born, circumcised, and named, then Jesus. John is greeted by his father, then Jesus is greeted by Simeon and Anna. And in all of these parallels, we see John pointing to Jesus. John comes first, he is followed by Jesus, and in every aspect, John is overshadowed by Jesus. John comes from a barren womb, but God had worked with that before. But Jesus comes from a virgin womb, which was entirely new. John has promised to be a prophet before the new kingdom comes. And Jesus has promised to reign in that kingdom once it comes. And as one commentator put it, John is to pave the way while Jesus himself is the way. John himself echoes this Christ word focus in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so when we consider that focus of John's ministry, we realize that this passage, it isn't about John at all. It's about God and this new work that he is introducing into this world, this springtime that he is bringing to a land of winter. And this entire passage shows us that we can have certainty about this new work of God. All these Old Testament parallels and fulfillments show that this is not some newfangled happening but it is in fact rooted in the, in the previous work of the trustworthy God. Gabriel's identity shows that this new work is from God himself. And Zechariah's silence demonstrates that his words can be trusted through all of these factors. Theophilus would have certainty in what he had been taught. And we can have that certainty too as we consider our own faith. And in fact, we can even have more certainty than Zechariah had or Theophilus had. Because we know that the promises that were given to Zechariah were fulfilled in the birth and life of John the Baptist. And because we know that the promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And because God has proven himself to be trustworthy in those promises, we can have assurance that he will be trustworthy in all the rest of his promises. The promise of forgiveness of sins if we repent. The promise of becoming more and more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of eternal life with God and all of his saints. Congregation, God can be trusted to keep all of these joy-bringing promises. For all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. In our realm today, many may wonder, even we may wonder, does God still remember his promises? Can we trust God to keep those promises? 
people of God. Just as God remembered these promises for 400 years between Malachi and Zechariah, so too will God remember his promises over the millennia. Right? As we see God's redemptive work through Jesus, as we remember that he was born, and we remember his life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf, we can be assured that it will come to completion, that we will live with him forever, that these joyful results will happen because they have been promised by a trustworthy ruler. And so this morning, as you consider the hopeless realms that you inhabit, and as you hear this joyful result of God's work, you can be assured that his work will find its ultimate promised fulfillment. Because he is a trustworthy ruler, we can have that trust, that faith, that the text encourages us to have. Just like Theophilus, we can have certainty and the things that we have been taught, because what God has promised will come to pass. What a comfort that is. What a, what a joy that is in this Advent season. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who keeps your promises. We praise you for being trustworthy, that we can depend on you to come through. We thank you for these past fulfillments of your promises. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith in you, that we might be encouraged in your promises of joyful blessings yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for our song of response, which is number 197 in your red hymn.